Well, for several weeks now, we've been in a series, as uh, Carol said, about the kingdom of God. And particularly, we're talking about the parables or the stories that Jesus told that had super important meaning about the kingdom. And many of you know that one of the most well-known parables, it could be the most uh, well-known parable, that Jesus ever told was one about a father and two sons. Uh, some people call it the prodigal son story. Well, today, if you looked on the bulletin, you probably saw that title, The Parable of the Two Sons, and may have thought that's what we were going to talk about. But in actuality, there is another parable in Scripture, a lesser-known parable, about a father and his two sons. It is a story about two sons and their decision or lack thereof of doing the will of the father. It's found in Matthew chapter 21, and I want to make just a quick note so if you read this story later on um, or with your life group or whatever, you don't get confused. This is one of those texts in the Bible where there is some disagreement uh, among ancient manuscripts. Uh, there are two sons involved, as I said, but some manuscripts have one son going first in the story and then some have the other son going first. The one we're going to read is from the NIV version, but if you were to look at other versions in the Bible like the New Revised Standard uh, it inverts the sons, which comes first. Now, it doesn't change the story in any way, but uh, don't want you to get confused. So, uh, just kind of a side note. So, let's read the story together now in Matthew chapter 21. Jesus says, what do you think? There was a man who had two sons, and he went to the first, and he said, son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later, he changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir, but he did not go. Which of these two did what his father wanted? The first they answered. And Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to you, John the Baptist came to you, to show you the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. Now I want you to understand this story is kind of like a two-act play. In Act 1, the family's kind of sitting around the breakfast table. And in those days, remember, family life and work life were intimately connected. By that I mean that some uh, sons especially were expected to work for their dads. Their dad was not just their dad, he was also their employer. So it was kind of like economic survival. So when the father gives the instructions here, the sons aren't surprised at all. The father says to the first son, Son, I need you to go and work in the vineyard today. Now this first son is kind of a surly kid. He's dressed in ripped jeans, has two intertwined serpents tattooed on his arm, and he looks up from his microwaved hot pocket at the breakfast table. And he says, me? The vineyard? Long hours and short wages, lift that barge and tote that bell? No thanks, Dad. I won't be going to the vineyard. So he gets up from his table. He hops on his Harley Davidson. And he drives off to see his body-pierced pink-haired girlfriend. Okay? And the tension is pretty thick around the breakfast table. Because that's a very striking response for a son to make to a father in those days. So the father turns to the second son. And the second son is dressed in skinny jeans with a flannel shirt. He's drinking his pumpkin spice latte with his spinach omelet. 
Have you ever noticed how when kids get in trouble, when one of the kids gets in trouble, the other kid just kind of turns into butter? Like they just like can melt the parent? Just like they become really, really, really nice. So the father gives the same command. He says to the second son, he says, you need to go to the vineyard and work today. And he says, I will, sir. Now this son is cheerful and compliant. He says exactly what his father wants him to hear. And he's laying it on a little thick. In fact, he throws in a sir just kind of for effect. And then he gets on his fixie bike and he heads out for the day. Now this scene reminds me, and some of you won't remember this show, but there's an old television show called Leave It to Beaver. Do you remember this show? Well, there's a character on this show that is the perfect second son. He's the one that was always buttering up adults behind their back, but he was totally phony. His name was Eddie Haskell. Do you remember Eddie Haskell? Yeah. Well, this is the Jesus version of Eddie Haskell. The vineyard? It would be an honor for me, sir. Maybe not for some kids, but for me, Dad, it's a privilege to serve you. Thanks for asking. You know, just this morning when I was having my private devotions, I was thinking how much I love you and how much I love the vineyard. So I will go, sir, and I will serve. And totally fooled, the mom and dad in this story must say, thank heaven for at least one son that obeys us. You see, he's the hero of the breakfast table. But there is a second act in this story, friends, and the second act is real important. In the second act, the first son, the surly one, the one who's on his Harley, is driving down the road, and he can't get his father's words out of his mind. He must think of all the father has done for him and what his father means to him and his, what his parents mean to him, and his heart softens and his stubbornness melts. In fact, the word that Jesus uses here is the word that means to repent. It says the son repents and he goes to the vineyard to work. Now imagine being the dad working in the vineyard and looking up and seeing the son ride up on his Harley. Suddenly he shows up. The last person in the world that he thought would be there is there. In the words of a fellow named Earl Palmer who writes about this, he says the first son might be described as a big problem at breakfast, but a joy at supper time. And then the father notices something else. Eddie Haskell, the other son, the one that with such joy said to mom and dad, I'll be there in the vineyard, he never shows up. So cheerful and so compliant Never said a harsh word, but as the afternoon wears on, it becomes pretty clear he never had any intentions of working in the vineyard at all. He was kind of blowing smoke. And in the words of Earl Palmer, he was a joy at breakfast, but a big problem at supper time. Here's what I want you to know. This is a supper time parable. It is not a breakfast parable. What matters in life is where you are at come supper time. We have two sons. One is openly defiant, says no to the father, repents, and he does the father's will. Another one who sounds so right, who talks so smoothly, who appears to be doing everything that is asked of him, and yet his heart has no intention of doing his father's will. He's absent from the vineyard. And Jesus makes this application in verse 31. 
he asked the crowd that's listening to him, he says, which of these two did the will of the Father? And what Jesus is trying to do is make this kind of spiritual parallel between the sons obeying their dad and people like you and I obeying God the Father doing his will today. You see, going to the vineyard is just another way of saying that we're going to do the will of God. I mean, that's the bullseye for Christians. In fact, if you want to say, what is the will of God? I'll try to make it as simplistic as I can. God's will is for you and I to become more and more like Jesus in every area of our lives. Now, why do I think that? Well, because in the very next verse, Jesus gets practical about this. He talks about John the Baptist who came before Jesus, and John proclaimed what Jesus calls the way of righteousness. John called people to turn their lives around, to do like the one son did, to go to the vineyard and to do the will of God in their life. And a person's response to this is a call to repentance. And the way of righteousness is huge. In fact, it's the whole ball game. So Jesus says, here's the deal. Will you stay where you are or will you get up and will you go to the vineyard? Here's the thing about being a Christ follower. Max Lucado, uh, pastor and author, says it best. He says, although God will certainly accept us just as we are when we come to him, he is not content with letting us stay that way. He has a goal in mind, and that goal is to become like his son in our words, our thoughts, and our actions. So with that thought in mind, I'd like us to do something together this morning. I'd like you, if you would, just to push the pause button on your life long enough to follow with me for a few minutes. I want to talk about a very important part of being conformed to the will of the Father. And I'd like to ask you today, by the time we end today, to apply this to your own life, to get very specific about it in your own life. Please imagine that you are a son or daughter sitting around the table. And whether it was a dad or whether it was a mom, doesn't matter who the parent is, you have to decide whether you will go to the vineyard. And there's a pivotal factor, and this is really important. There's a pivotal factor that determines whether you will ever make it to the vineyard. The guy by the name of Robert Mulholland writes about this. And he says the process of being conformed to the image of Jesus, to Christ, or doing the will of the Father takes place primarily at the point of our unlikeness to Christ's image. Let me explain. The main place that transformation, spiritual formation happens is in the places in my life where I am least like Jesus. Now think about your own life. Is there any place in your life, any place, that you are not perfectly reflecting the character of Jesus? Somebody handed me a prayer one Sunday several weeks ago. You probably heard it. It was labeled a prayer for today. And it says, Dear Lord, so far today I'm doing all right. I've not gossiped, lost my temper, been greedy, grumpy, nasty, selfish, or overindulgent. However, in a few minutes, Lord, I'm going to get out of bed. And I'm going to need a lot more help then. Now here's the truth. In my life, in your life, in my temper, in my tongue, in my attitude, in your attitudes, where I'm not conformed to Christ, where I'm not getting up and going to the vineyard, 
I need to address that. So I want to talk about that process for a little bit. And the first stage, there's kind of three stages here we're going to look at. The first stage in being transformed or character transformation is what might be called the stage of confrontation. We have to get crystal clarity about where I am not conformed to the image of Jesus. Before I can ever go to the vineyard, I must know with crystal clarity where the problem lies. And that really is the secret. I mentioned this before. There's a great story. There's a longtime factory worker. He had retired from his job in a large industrial plant. For years and years, he had been in charge of running these huge pieces of equipment. And one day after he retired, the factory had a total shutdown. And the plant executives were just dumbfounded as to what was causing the problem. Production was at a standstill. They were losing money by the minute. So somebody had the bright idea to call this old retired plant manager who had been there for years and ask him if he'd willing to be able to come out to the plant and maybe spot the malfunction. Well, he agreed to come, but he told them ahead of time, he says, it won't be for free. You're going to have to pay me. So they agreed. He came to the plant, and after a few minutes walking around, he walked up to this one large piece of machinery, took out a piece of white chalk, and put a great big X on one spot. He said, there's your problem. Something's in wrong, wrong inside of this piece of equipment. The workers tore open the machinery, and to their surprise, the old man was right. The machine, machinery was fixed in a matter of minutes. The plant was back up and running. A few days later, the accounting department got a bill from the retired plant worker for $10,000. And the management folks felt like the bill was a little high, so they returned it to him asking for a detailed billing. A few days later, they received their detailed billing from the factory worker. And on it, it simply read, for placing a mark on the broken machinery, $1. For knowing where to place the mark, $9,999. Now that is the problem, isn't it? Where do you place the mark? Where do you place the mark? The first stage is confrontation. I need a sense of clarity. Where, I, where am I not like Jesus the most? And then I can have a sense of urgency about what I need to do and what I need to let him do in my life. Now it could be truth-telling. It could be the way you relate to your spouse. It could be a financial deal. It could involve anger. It could involve your words that you speak. Jesus, when he's telling this story, he says, listen, this is precisely the ministry of John the Baptist. John had this wonderful gift of confrontation. Some of you probably have spouses who have that gift as well, right? And Jesus talked to people about turning their life around, or John did, and when they responded... He was baptizing people. They were confessing their sins. People were saying, yes, I need to turn away from my sins. And then the religious leaders come out, and they knew all about John. And John knows all about the religious leaders. And when they come out to greet him one day, he just looks at them and he says, you rude vipers. <laughs> That's not exactly the kind of greeting you want when you're trying to get in the good graces of people. But he looks at them and he says, bear fruit worthy of repentance. Later on, remember, he had this encounter with King Herod. The governor over Israel had taken his own sister-in-law away from his brother to be his wife. 
And John is the only one who confronts him and says, listen, man, what you're doing is not right. And the Gospel of Mark says that actually Herod feared John. He knew he was a righteous man. He even protected John. But when he heard this, he was greatly troubled because he knew what John was saying to him was true. And he had to decide, will I listen to John? Will I be confronted with the truth? Will I repent or will I not? And unfortunately, most of you know that John was killed because of this. Now, how does this work? How does the stage of confrontation get to us? Well, there's a few ways. Sometimes it comes through Scripture. Sometimes you can read Scripture and all of a sudden, it's just like the light bulb comes on. It's like God is speaking directly to you. And He says, this has got to change. Sometimes you come to church. Sometimes in worship. Sometimes we're singing a song. And as you're singing, you realize that the words you're singing and your life, they don't sync up together. Your lips don't actually match your life. And so the Spirit touches your heart and you say, you know what? i got to change that. Sometimes you come and there's teaching that goes on. Some of you have been here on Sunday mornings and some kind of biblical challenge was given and you said, you know what? I've got to do some things different in my life. Sometimes you'll be sitting here and you get what I call the ministry of the elbow. Somebody next to you will have the ministry of the elbow and they're like the Holy Spirit working through them. Usually, to be honest with you, it's a carnal elbow, just so you know. You just need to elbow them right back. But sometimes, the Holy Spirit is at work. And you can listen and say, God, what is it about my character you want to change? Here's how great it is to follow Jesus. Sometimes, the ministry of confrontation comes through a total stranger. Several years ago, I had a little traffic accident. I know this will surprise some of you. I was on the road, and I was driving in a way that Jesus would not be driving if he were in my car. <laughs> and I cut a guy off. And it often happens, it almost invariably happens when you cut someone off, you end up at the same red light beside each other, right? So this guy pulls up, and he rolls down his window. And he just kind of thought for just a few seconds, and then he looked at me, and he said, What's your problem? I'm going to tell you something. That's a very profound question. Now, he didn't stick around to help me with that problem. <laughs> I don't think he really cared what it was. But I realized in that question and in that moment that I had a problem. I still have that problem. But sometimes God will speak to you through some people you don't even know. Now, here's, here's the thing, and this is a little secret I'm going to let you in on. Generally, I think when it happens, when someone or something reveals an area where you're not conforming to Jesus, usually it will not be a shocking revelation. Usually you will not gasp and grab your heart. Usually you'll say, you know what, that makes sense. Because usually there's like this vague awareness on the back burner. I don't know if you've ever had this kind of experience, but uh, Robert and I are probably getting ready to have this one. Uh, we're in the process of uh, selling our place now, and people sometimes when they sell and they move into a new place, there are things in that new place that just drive you crazy. 
And you like make a list of them, like 10 things or whatever that you know you've got to change if you're going to live in this new place. Let me ask you, have you ever done that but you never get around to changing those things? For example, let's say it's a flower bed, something in the landscape. There's one particular bush or shrub that you just vow to yourself, as soon as I get in that place, I am going to pull that out and I'm going to replace it. But now it's 10 or 20 years later and now you can't remove the bush because it's covering up the ugly siding on the house that you swore you were going to replace. We had a couple friends that we knew years ago. They had new furniture in their home and they tried this experiment with a new dog and the experiment went horribly wrong. Their dog turned out to be a goat and it ate part of their furniture. And I don't mean it gnawed on it. I mean it ate part of their furniture. And they did the strangest thing. They got rid of the dog, but they kept the furniture. And you could go in their home, and they would have an ottoman, and uh, it was half eaten by the dog. But they stopped noticing it. Every once in a while, guests would come over, and somebody would like, want to take up an offering so they could go get a new ottoman. But here's the deal. They just got used to it because they saw it over and over and over. But when somebody came in with fresh eyes, all of a sudden it became clear. That's the way the stage of confrontation works. Usually it's not a shocking revelation. We've just kind of gotten used to it. So let me ask you here. Have you asked anybody that knows you and really, really loves you, have you asked them, hey, help me with this area of my walk with God. Where you see that I'm not conforming to his image. Will you lovingly let me know? That's the confrontation stage. The second stage, super important, is the stage of response. If I see an area and I know it's there, I have to respond. Now there's really two responses here. The first is like the first kid in the story did. The surly kid. He just said, I don't care. I'm not going to the venue. I'm going to harden my heart. I'm going to close my eyes. I'm going to deliberately shut this part of my life off from God. And you can do that. You can shake your fist at God and you can say, I don't want to change. No one will ever force you to do it, friends. The only answer, unless you want to get to the end of your life and have a mountain of regret, the only answer is to do what the first son, of, uh, first son in the story did, and that is to change your mind and repent. But I'll tell you what I think is a bigger danger. A bigger danger than going through your entire life and saying no. I think the bigger danger is the danger of the second son where there is just insincere, superficial compliance. The son claims he wants to do the will of the father, but he never goes to the vineyard. And his compliance was just this kind of like device to avoid confrontation and pain. And the reason that I don't face up to the truth, the reason that I deceive myself, is just plain pain avoidance. I can look just like that other son. I can look good. I can sound good. I can put on a spiritual face. But underneath, I'm going to do what I want to do. See, like many of us, that second son wants the approval and the ease that goes with disobedience, but he doesn't want the trouble of actually obeying. 
Now, I'll say this gently, so take it for what it's worth. What this looks like in the real world is a Christ follower who comes to God and says, everything, God, I give you everything. I lift my hands and I show you what I bring and I bring you everything. But if you try to get the remote control out of their hands in their house, it turns into like WrestleMania 45. What they say is they want to bring everything. They want to do that, but not everything will be given to God. This is the person who talks about volunteering, but never actually signs up to volunteer or shows up. This is the person who believes life groups could just be helpful in their spiritual walk, but just can never open up their schedule to join one. See, they want approval, but they don't want to obey. Now, the number one evasion technique is generally that we will avoid being confronted. We'll never ask anybody to help us. Never. So that means we have to come to a point of response that actually brings change. And that, the only way to do that is to say yes to God. Here's the great thing about God. Even when you see the truth, God will not change it in you if you resist and defy him. God will not violate your personhood. You have to say yes to God. And you saw kind of a ridiculous example before the message in the clip. But I'd like you to do something right now, just in this moment right now. Whatever area of your life is, and you know what it is, I'm sure. If you're willing, just between you and God, just right now where you're sitting, if you would just quietly say to yourself, if you just say those words, yes. In your heart, just say, yes, God, whatever it is you need me to do, even if it's painful, even if it involves another person, even if it means having to uh, go through confrontation, if you will just say right now, no more procrastinating, no more putting it off, yes. If you're willing to do that, there's one more stage. Saying yes is not enough, but this last one is important. Saying yes allows us to enter into the stage of transformation. I would love it if I could get conformed to the image of Jesus overnight, but you can't. You cannot FedEx it. You cannot microwave it. It's a process that takes time. And one of the greatest fears that lurks underneath the surface of every person needing to say yes to God is the fear that they can't really change. They're still going to be the same stubborn person or the same angry person or the same greedy person as they were last week or last year. If you're living in that fear this morning, I want to assure you assure you that with God's help you can change you can move away from attitudes and habits and behaviors that weigh you down some people it takes a longer time than others but usually usually this process of transformation involves something that for centuries Christ followers have understood and have called spiritual disciplines let me kind of explain it this way when you go back and look at the ministry of Jesus, one of the things you'll see about him is he was a genius at helping people initiate this process. He would confront us with the truth about ourselves, and he would elicit a response from people. And then he would enter them into the process of transformation. I'm going to give you an example. Jesus met a guy named Zacchaeus who was a tax collector. 
Now let's just take a guess here. Of the seven deadly sins, if you know at least a few of the deadly sins, which one do you think Zacchaeus probably wrestled with the most? Greed. Good. Greed. You'd be exactly right. So Jesus comes to the tree where Zacchaeus is hiding. He brings him out of hiding. He confronts him with the truth about himself. And Zacchaeus comes out of hiding and he receives Jesus into his home. He says yes to Jesus. And then something wonderful happens. And this is what some people miss in the story. Jesus does something to help Zacchaeus get rid of his greed. He begins to practice the discipline of giving. He knows that if Zacchaeus is ever going to be liberated from greed, if it's ever going to get, uh, if he's going to get out of the grip of that, he's going to have to become a cheerful giver. Now, what Zacchaeus does, according to Scripture, is he gives the people that he's stolen from four times what he has taken away from them, and then he gives a half of what's remaining to the poor. Fifty percent of all his possessions he gives away to help those in need. Now here's the question. Do you think that that changed the heart of Zacchaeus? It revolutionized his life. Rather than just saying, yes, I'll go to the vineyard, Zacchaeus actually followed through and said, let me tell you what it looks like to live in the vineyard. We see this sometimes in the uh, Gospel of Mark, which Robbie's going to walk us through in October. The disciples come to Capernaum and Jesus was in the, in the house. And he says, what were you guys arguing about on the way? And they clammed up like a husband that had been caught. Silent, complete silence. They knew why, because they had been arguing about who was the greatest among them. Think about that. Who was the greatest among them? Nobody was willing to say, well, you know, Jesus was arguing about which one of us was the greatest so he confronts them, and they say yes to Jesus, and they follow him. And in John 13, you know what happens? Jesus takes a basin of water, takes off his outer garment, takes a towel, and washes their feet. And then he says, listen, I have set you an example. For what I have done to you, you will do for one another. And Jesus says, what I want you to do is enter into the spiritual discipline of servanthood. Because here's the deal. When you are in that discipline and you say, I'm going to wash other people's feet, it's really hard to say that you're the greatest foot washer in the kingdom. It's really hard to say, you know, I'm more humble than you are. See, here's the deal. Confrontation, you see the truth. Response, you say yes. And then you enter into the practice by which that transformation happens. Everybody with me? So here's the assignment before we go home today. Will you try to decide and really identify one area where you would say or someone else would say you're not conforming to the image of Jesus? And once you have said yes, will you ask God for wisdom so you will know what spiritual practice you need to enter into to be transformed? Now, for some of you who are anxious and worried, Jesus gave us the perfect spiritual discipline. He called it prayer. He said, talk to God about everything going on in your life. If it's like Zacchaeus and greed, you need to become a giver. You could be like the guy I know, who every time we were in a social setting, he just fell in love with himself and he loved to hear himself talk. 
He would just talk on and on and on. Other people were like desperate to get away. Eyes were glazing over. Pupils were fixed and dilated. He could not stop talking. He needs someone to lovingly, lovingly share the truth with him. And he can enter into something that is called the spiritual practice of silence. Now listen, it's going to be hard. It might require the ministry of duct tape. (laughs) But he's not being conformed to the image of Jesus. So that would be the spiritual discipline that he could enter into. Maybe you've lost joy in your life. You're demanding. You're always in a bad mood. You know, maybe you need to sing or listen to music. Find time to be alone with God and worship. Maybe your heart's become cold toward God and you need to spend time just adoring Him and telling Him what He means to you. Maybe you're living in fear today and you need to take an appropriate risk and step out in faith. I want to help our church do this. I want to help me do this. So I'm going to walk through some areas where we need to be truthful with ourselves. Now, I'm not going to be able to get to all of them by any means, but here's what I'd like to do. This is going to take a little bit of courage, okay? If I mention an area where you would honestly say that you hear the Father saying, that area is for you today, I'm going to ask you to be bold enough to just stand, okay? Just stand where you're at. And by standing, what you will be saying is, is, yes, Father, I want to go to the vineyard. Okay? A little courage today. Let's start with this area. The area of our health and self-care. God has given us this wonderful body and mind to live with. But oftentimes we mistreat it or we abuse it or we neglect it. Not only our bodies but also our minds. We don't honor them the way we should. Sometimes we feed them the wrong things or we withhold good things that will help us flourish. So today, if you can hear the whisper of God say, that's you. If you need to say yes to God when it comes to caring for your body or developing your mind, I'm going to ask you to stand. Here's another one. Stewardship. Whether you have a little or a lot, God has flowed a certain amount of resources into our lives. And sometimes we manage our resources well, but sometimes we miss the mark when it comes to things like our money, our time, or our talent. So if you're here today and you hear God saying, you need to say yes to me when it comes to your finances, or managing your time, or using the talents and abilities I've given you, I'm going to ask you to stand. Here's another one. One of God's greatest gifts to us is people. Whether it's family or friends or co-workers, whether it's fellow Oasians. Interacting and building relationships with other people is a part of doing God's will. Sometimes relationships, however, become very challenging, draining, downright difficult. But rather than retreat and do life alone, we are called to be reconcilers, peacemakers, image bearers of Jesus to other people. So today, if you need to say yes to God when it comes to any relationship, someone else in your life, let me ask you to stand. 
serving. Everybody in this room is called to make a difference in the world, whether it's a simple act of kindness, a volunteer opportunity, or an ongoing place of ministry. Doing the will of God means we are the hands and we are the feet of Jesus in this world. And because we live in a world of uncertainty, of hardship, and even injustice, we have to keep our hearts tender and our hands extended, even in the face of rejection or ridicule. So today, if you feel like you need to say yes to God when it comes to serving in this world and trying to make a difference, I invite you to stand right now. One more. Trusting God and being obedient to Him is certainly a part of doing His will. Oftentimes when we go through a dark or dry period in our walk with God, we begin to live with this unhealthy sense of doubt, bitterness, anxiety about God's care and His purpose for our lives. So instead of leaning into God, we kind of run from God. We hide from God. We might even blame God. So if this morning you feel like you need to say yes when it comes to your faith and your daily walk with God, I'm going to invite you to stand right now. Now here's the deal. There's obviously areas that I may not have addressed. So for the rest of us, I'm just going to ask you if it is your sincere desire, your genuine desire to go to the vineyard and do the will of God, I invite you to stand and join the rest of us. And as you do, I'm going to ask Levi if he would come and lead us in kind of a responsive time here. He's going to read and we're going to respond. And remember, this is more than just an exercise in repeating words. It is saying yes to the Father. Let's commit this together. The revelation of God is whole and pulls our lives together. The directions of God are plain and easy on the eyes. Yes and amen. There's more. God's word warns us of danger and directs us to hidden treasure. Otherwise, how will we find our way or know when we play the fool? Yes and amen. Clean the slate, God, so we can start the day fresh. Keep us from stupid sins, from thinking we can take over your work. Yes and amen. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer.